Welcome to another episode of the Brand Archer Podcast. Uh, missed a week there, but I'm back on schedule. And this week, I'm going to go back into the Book of Acts because I realized I didn't actually start in the beginning when I started reading from Acts. I think I started in 7 or 8. So I'm going to just go ahead and go through those first uh, four or five chapters, six chapters. And uh, we're just going to go and finish up the book of Acts. So let's go ahead and jump into it today. Thank you for tuning in. I believe this episode will be a blessing to you. I believe it will leave you satisfied and filled just like God does every time you hang out with him. Every time you decide to give your time and your thoughts and your life and you just meditate upon the word or you just met and you sit there and just think about God. Um, he meets you in that place. Actually, there's a scripture that says he keeps him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon him. And have me know that there's a warfare over your mind. There's a warfare over your thought life. There's a warfare over the way you think. And the enemy is constantly throwing a barrage of thoughts, whether circumstances, whatever in your life. But if you know how to keep your mind on him, he'll keep you in perfect peace because he'll interject his word. He'll interject his heart, his, his purpose. He'll cause you to turn, turn away from maybe a decision or maybe there's stress or there's fear, there's anxiety there. And instead of just moving into that place without peace, he'll cause you to turn aside and wait for the peace and wait for the um, instruction of what he has for you to do. So that way you can make decisions and do things with him, right? Not on your own, not ahead of him, not behind him, but in step and in unison with him um, so that it's actually him doing it through you. It's actually pretty cool. So Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you're gonna speak to us. We thank you for uh, the book of Acts, Lord. I thank you for the <laughs> leaving that in the Bible for us to read and that it's actually a book that's still being written in our lives, God, that the book of Acts never ended. It actually is continuing to this day. There's been incredible things that that your uh, disciples and people on the earth have done for you and uh, 
that you've done through them on the earth, God, that your spirit has moved, Holy Spirit has come and confirmed and done many signs and wonders uh, throughout the ages, that he's still here, that he's still working his mandate, his mission is still the Great Commission. It's still there to show forth the glory of God, his power, his purpose. And Lord, we just thank you that you've given him to us. And we thank you, Lord, that you can reveal and expose even more of who he is in his heart and his purpose and his passion for our, for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's go ahead in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The first account I made, Theolophus, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, was a continuous report about all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he ascended to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given instruction. So we see that it's the Holy Spirit that was actually operating in Jesus's life. The ministry of Jesus wasn't done aside from the Holy Spirit. He actually, all the miracles he did, everything he spoke, everything that he uh, was instructed to do or even led to do was by the Holy Spirit. And it was perfect. How many know he wouldn't have been the Savior if he wasn't perfect? So every decision he made, everything that he did was to perfection. He was fully God and he was fully man. So you had a a human man who was born of a woman. Obviously, the Spirit of God came upon Mary and impregnated her. And then Jesus was born, but he was God. He was God in flesh. And when the Holy Spirit, uh, I believe it was in the baptism of John, when now the Holy Spirit descends upon him, and here comes the equipping and the empowerment, right? And it was now flesh. It was a sign... uh, of the flesh which Jesus lived in just like we do we all have a body right we all have uh, we're born with that carnal nature which Jesus had and we believe that he did not sin he he wasn't you know a teenager doing bad stuff he was in his father's house about his father's business because he was God but now here comes John baptizing Jesus and then the Holy Spirit comes upon him and empowers him for ministry and it takes him into the wilderness where he is tested and then he comes down within the power and the anointing of God to go and do all the awesome, amazing things that he did. So we see here he is giving instruction by the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these men he also showed himself alive after his suffering, after his suffering, after he died on the cross. He appeared and showed himself to be alive. They actually saw him, right? That was when uh, Doubting Thomas said, let me put my you know, finger in the holes in your hand. And he said, come, right? Go ahead. It's me. I'm alive. I was raised from the dead by the Spirit of God. And he's... So th- there's actually a period there where there are reports and witnesses, right? There was more than just the disciples. There was, I think it was like, um, was it 500 people who saw Jesus alive? raised from the dead or, or something like that. I mean, don't I don't know if I'm 100% correct on that uh, fact, but I know that there were many that saw him and they, you know, they ate together and they had fellowship and they laughed with him and they and he uh, 
began to tell them and give them instructions. And to these, to these men, he also showed himself alive after his suffering by a series of many infallible proofs and unquestionable demonstrations, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and talking to them about the things concerning the kingdom of God. So Jesus not only was raised from the dead, but he was alive on the earth. And it says for 40 days, he was spending time with the apostles. He was he was showing them and, and by many in, infallible proofs. He was proving that he was, in fact, Jesus alive, returned. And he was teaching them. Even after being resurrected, he was speaking and teaching them and talking to them about the, the kingdom of God. Which, right, the gospel that we, that we preach isn't only a gospel of salvation, but it's it's a message about a kingdom, God's kingdom, the kingdom that rules over every kingdom, the, the authority that's over every authority, the one who brought this whole thing into existence, that kingdom, not man's kingdom, not the kingdom of uh, the animals, whatever, <laughs> but it's God's kingdom. And while being together and eating with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, of which he said, you have heard me speak. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized and empowered and united with the Holy Spirit not long from now. So he's telling them to go wait. The Holy Spirit's gonna come. Just like when Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit came upon, right? Because there's a scripture where it talks about Jesus blowing on the disciples and then receiving the Holy Spirit. And there's a difference between the Holy Spirit coming within you, right, when you're saved, which I believe a lot of believers, even other denominations, have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of them. But they don't allow him to come upon them and use them and, and, be, and, and be a witness and be empowered to do great and mighty things. Um, they settle for just an inward dwelling and an inward witness, but not an outward witness, which is why he, right, why he died. It wasn't just so that the Holy Spirit come live on you and deal with you and deal with all your sins and all your issues and purify and all that. That's not the only purpose. It's so that now he can use you to be a witness on the earth, to preach about the kingdom, to to represent it as an ambassador. You're, you're a representative a representative of the kingdom of God now, no longer representative of the kingdom of this world, which was, which is ruled and um, governed by the devil. That's why you see wickedness in high places and seats of authority because the devil's still contending and in, in using that authority. And it takes somebody with the authority of God to come in and to say, no, you've been beat, you're defeated. You can't stay here. You don't have any place here. You have no authority here. And to rebuke that sucker and get them out of those positions in this world, in this, wherever we are. As ambassadors, we represent the kingdom. And where we go, that um, kingdom can manifest and that authority can then becomes the authority because it is the ruling authority. Uh, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait. And so now when they had come together, they asked him repeatedly, Lord, are you at this time reestablishing the kingdom of restoring it to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power and ability when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. See, he's saying there's a, when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you as a believer, 
But now here he's talking about the Holy Spirit's gonna come upon you. And what's it for? So that you can be a witness to tell people about me, both in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and then here it is, even to the ends of the earth. So the purpose of Pentecost was that the Holy Spirit would now come upon people and they would be yielded and surrendered vessels because of the work of the Holy Spirit on the inside. Because the Holy Spirit has to do the work in you first before you'll be able to yield and surrender to what he wants to do upon you and in, in, in through your life as a yielded vessel. You have to learn how to get out of the way and to surrender and let God use your life. And that takes boldness. It takes faith. It takes you understanding that it's not of your power nor your strength, but it's by the Spirit. And he says, you're going to receive power and ability. So where you didn't have power or ability, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you get power and ability. That's why if people are, are shy or they're timid or they don't have ability or they don't have power in their witness, it's because probably they're not surrendered and yielded to the Holy Spirit. They might have head knowledge. They might know him. He might speak to them about, you know, convict them of sin or convict them of things in their life. But then that's where they stop. They don't allow him to then come upon them to give them ability and power to go be a witness, to tell others, to stand in boldness and faith, to be a witness on the earth, to perform miracles, to go out and to, and to do the works and to be used by him in a great and mighty way. And he said, this is for what? For to the ends of the earth, for everyone, everywhere. He, he's, he's wanting to take that sickle and, and drag it across the entire earth to reap the harvest, to bring in those who would say yes to him. So after he said these things, he was caught up and they looked on and a cloud took him up out of their sight. I mean, think of that, right? I mean, some of us will read this stuff and it just we just blow by it. We don't even think about it. But when you actually think about this, it's like, really? He, he was caught up <laughs> and they looked up and, and a cloud took him in their sight. Like here comes this cloud and he just, just there he is. <laughs> That's like something out of a, a movie or something. It's just, it's kind of bizarre, right? But it says it right here in the Bible. That's what happened. Supernaturally, Jesus was taken up in a cloud. And while they were looking intently into the sky, and he, and he was going, two men in white clothing suddenly stood beside them, who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will return in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. So now he's talking about, which is which is the time we're living in, right? Between him going up and ascending and the time of him coming down and descending back when he returns, right? And when he it talks about it in Revelation and he's coming back and he's not coming back um, you know, as as the meek and mild one who went to the cross because he already went to the cross, right? He humbled himself, but he's coming back with fire, with a sword. He's coming back with judgment. He's coming back with everything he promised for those who believe, and he's coming back with everything he promised for those who don't. And this is the truth. It's the great and terrible day of the Lord. There's great for those who believe in him and love him, but it's terrible for those who don't. And that's Bible and you can study it <laughs> and you'll know that what I'm saying is truth. Uh, so when he, uh, where are we at? Here we are. While they were looking, they saw two men out of nowhere, right? Just probably two angels coming and saying, hey, 
They'll be looking up. Now it's time to go do something for him until he comes back. Then the disciples returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, only a Sabbath day's journey less than one mile away. When they had entered the city, they went upstairs to the upper room where they were staying indefinitely. That is Peter, John, and his brother James, and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Nathaniel, and Matthew. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Thaddeus, the sons of, son of James, all these with one mind, one purpose, were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Let's go back here. So here's all these men, right? The disciples, and they're all together. And it makes a point to say what? That they're with one mind and one purpose. And that one mind and purpose was developed in, I believe, uh, you know, you have to tend to that and it has to be cultivated in a group of people. It doesn't just happen. All these people with different minds, different opinions, don't just all of a sudden have one mind. No, they've been living together, walking together, being taught by Jesus, discipled. They were all on the same page. They were yielded. They were surrendered to God. And this allowed for them to have one mind in the way that they exercised their faith, in the way that they probably um, came together and ate and worshiped, but also what? Devoting themselves to prayer. They prayed together. They prayed and they were in agreement seeking the will of God, seeking the purposes of God with one mind. Not one guy praying one thing and this guy over here praying something else and then disagreeing. This guy's prayer over here and then this guy's praying the opposite of what they... I've been around Christianity long enough to, to be in rooms with men who don't agree and then one guy will pray this and the other guy will pray this over here and he's praying the opposite of this guy and, this, and then there's a contention and there, you can just sense it in the atmosphere and it's, it's just bizarre. And you have to address that stuff because the devil lives in that place. The devil lives in that place of disharmony and disunity. And you have to get to the root of why are these two disagreeing? Why are they, what, what's going on here? And either they have to become one and get together on the same page, or you have to make a separation. You have to bring a division because that, it's like a, a, a leaven that comes in and will leaven the lump or will cause destruction in the united group that, of these disciples. But they're already united. They're like brothers. I'm sure they had their disagreements, but there was no way that they were not going to wait and, and obey what Jesus told them. So they're here praying, seeking the Lord after it in the upper room. And it says, um, all these were on my one purpose, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, waiting together along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So it was it was a community. It was a community, a family of people who were Christians, who loved God, who had the same passion and the same heart, who loved the Lord and were now being obedient to him and what his instructions were. And so now on one of these days, Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters, a gathering of about 120 believers were there. And he said, brothers and sisters, it was necessary. Uh, whoops. It was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the lips of David, King of Israel. So the same Holy Spirit that's instructing Jesus to tell the disciples, go wait. Here, Peter's saying this, that same Holy Spirit, you're talking years and hundreds, or if not thousands of years prior, 
That same Holy Spirit is foretelling by the lips of David, king of Israel, about Judas Iscariot through a prophecy who acted as a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was counted among us and received his share by divine allotment in this ministry. He was brought on by Jesus. Jesus knew he was going to be deceit or uh, uh, Jesus knew he was going to be betrayed, right? And that betrayal was going to come, and it was already prophesied. It was it had to happen that way because that's the way God intended it to happen. He would have never went to the cross if it wasn't for the betrayal. Now Jesus. Uh, sorry, now Judas Iscariot acquired a piece of land indirectly with the money paid him as a reward for his treachery. And then this is the part that I always kind of trip out, being that it's in Acts chapter 1, and it goes into this description of Judas and what happens to him. And it's very violent. It says, it said, And falling headlong, his body burst open in the middle, and all his intestines poured out. So, he acquired a piece of land with the money that was paid him for the reward of his treachery by the Pharisees, Sadducees. And then he hung himself. Right? He, I mean, that's what people teach, that he hung himself. Or, or maybe he had an accident, but this just says that he fell headlong. His body burst open in the middle and all his intestines poured out. I mean, that's pretty gruesome. It's pretty... It's almost like if you look at it from the perspective of like God, you know, his judgment comes to expose the innards, right? It comes to expose the inner thoughts and intents of the heart. So here he is being exposed, like literally, right? His innards. And he was, you know, he was treacherous. He was treacherous and he was a uh, disloyal and it's sad, but here he is dying in this very gruesome way because of his choices. And sometimes I believe God just, it's its not that it's God's heart to be like, ah, uh, you know, but it's almost like God's judgment on that spirit of disloyalty or that spirit of uh, rebellion or, or uh, when people are, you know, just they plot and they plan and they want to try to take the righteous out or they want to take somebody out or they have these ugly desires on the inside that God sees. You know, man might not be able to see it. You might not be able to sniff out those who are plotting your demise. But God sees it. God knows it. And God will, the end of those people who try to usurp God and, and come after God's people is, is never pretty. Because really, at the end of the day, it's not up to the man to bring, you know, uh, the revenge or the vengeance, right? God does it and he does it in a way better way and it's pretty intense when he does it because he lets you know he's God and nobody else is so uh, let's move on from that for the books of book of Psalms here it is is written let it his place of residence become desolate and let there be no one to live in it uh, and again let another take his position as an overseer so basically prophesying that he would be replaced so of the men who have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus spent with us, beginning with the baptism by John at the outset of Jesus's ministry until the day when he was taken up from us. So you see right here, the beginning of, uh, beginning with the baptism by John. So that's what I was talking about earlier, that when he was baptized by John, that was when his ministry began. That was the beginning of his ministry. When the Holy Spirit 
came upon him like a dove. It was now the Holy Spirit upon him to, to work through him to do what God had called him to do, which is everything that's in the New Testament, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You can study it. And there's even more in the Bible. Bible says that there wouldn't be a room big enough to hold all the things that Jesus did. Um, and they put forward two men, Joseph, the one called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. They prayed and said, you, Lord, who know all hearts, right? Isn't that a prayer right there? We should pray. What I just was talking about. You, Lord, who know all hearts, you know their thoughts, motives, and desires. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship with Judas left to go on to his own place of evil and they cast lots for them and the lot fell to Matthias and he was added to the 11 apostles. Now there's other religions that teach this, this weird doctrine and I believe it's the Mormonism, but they'll, they'll teach that the Jesus and the 12 disciples represented offices that are still in existing today. But what, just like they did here where they elected um, Matthias to replace Judas in that hierarchy of the disciples, right, for the ministry, that's what the Mormons teach. And they teach that even today that they can still write scripture. So like the apostles and uh, they can write scripture and it's, it's considered holy, it's considered God's word. Well, this is what the Mormon church has done is they've created this weird dynamic where like the office of all the apostles are still active and then there's one who represents the office of Jesus and that would be like the head I don't know what they call him in that organization but he would be he would represent like Jesus on the earth that that's his anointing that's his office and then all the 12 around him whoever their names are Bill John and the weird thing about this is that's what's created all this crazy polygamy weird belief systems because men will get in their head and like start writing stuff and that and men who are broken and fallible will come in and try to pretend like the holy spirit's still writing through them which granted i believe the holy spirit can still speak through people through writing it but it's not to be compared to the bible like it doesn't become as holy and as true as the bible and that's what the mormons believe they believe because it's being written by one of those people in the office that they sit in that that now God re is that's the word of God and they've had to go back and recant and <laughs> and admit they oh that, my bad that that guy was wrong <laughs> which is like if, if that's the case and you'd have to go back to the Bible and you could disprove the Bible right but that's that's not true so again there's some bizarre stuff that people will do with this with this scripture here and I don't know why I went into that but I'm just sharing that with you I don't believe that I believe that just like the Bible says, they were unlearned men. They were just normal men, fishermen, tax collector, right? A lawyer, whatever, whatever their positions were before they became the apostles. The thing that made them special and set them apart was the Holy Spirit, was God. Was God not only within them, but coming upon them to empower them for their ministry. It wasn't their title. It wasn't that they were, you know, uh, I mean, they were special and chosen by God, but the thing that made them special and chosen was God's Holy Spirit. It wasn't anything they possessed in and of themselves. It was God on them and in them that made them great. 
just like us today. It's God in us and on us that makes us special or great before the Lord. And it doesn't mean that we're lifted higher than other people, like like God loves other people because he doesn't show partiality. But God does show favor to those who seek him, to those who desire him, to those who run after him. He will favor those who, who obey him and do what he asks them to do over those who are disobedient, rebellious, and do what they want to do. doesn't mean he loves one more than the other. It means that the person actually either loves him more or, and that's the truth of it. It's you can have people who are loved by God with the same measure of love, no partiality, right? But it's the person's individual's desire and his um, choice of how much he's going to love and obey and run after God. And that's what sets him apart. That's what causes God to say, oh, my beloved, one of my chosen, right? I believe that anyways. Uh, So in chapter two, it says, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place and suddenly a sound came from heaven like a rushing violent wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. There appeared to them tongues resembling fire which were being distributed among them and they rested on each one of them and each person received, there's the word receive, you gotta receive the Holy Spirit. He doesn't just come on you and force himself upon you. Your heart, you have to receive them. Just like if somebody came knocking at your door, right? Hello, who is it? Oh, it's, uh, I'm just, you know, I'm in the neighborhood. I'm doing this thing and I'm like, oh, no, thank you. <laughs> right? Oh, we're not interested. No, thank you. Or what What about this knock? Hey, it's, it's somebody you know, right? Hey, it's your mom. Hey, it's your dad. Hey, it's your sister. Oh, come on in. Come on in, receive, right? You receive them into your house. Well, it's the same thing here. You have to receive the Holy Spirit into your being, into your life. And not only just like a common thing like your family, but no, he's now, he's actually God. You're receiving God into your life. And he's king and Lord and and ruler of now your whole being, right? Your mindset, your thought life, uh, your actions, what you do with your life. He wants to now come in And Jesus takes lordship in your life. He's Lord because now the Holy Spirit has that place in your life. And you you say Jesus is Lord, and that means the Holy Spirit has dominion and rule in your life inwardly, right? And what that does is now free you up for him to come upon you and use you in miraculous ways in people's lives to show forth the glory of God and to lead them to Jesus for salvation and for eternal life. So there was a a rushing wind, violent wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. I remember one time praying in, actually this happened in my experience, but all of a sudden I started hearing like this noise of like, honestly, it sounded like either a train or a wind and it got really loud in my ears. And then all of a sudden it was like, I just felt the presence of God really strong. And I know that sounds weird, but that's, I I can honestly say I heard it with my ears. Like it was just this sound that came. You know, sometimes how you get like a ringing in your ear, you'll hear like all of a sudden you go bing, like in your ear. And you'll be like, what the heck? And then people say, oh, that means somebody's talking bad about you. And then if it's your other ear, it's like, oh, they're talking good about you. (laughs) Somebody's talking good about you. Well, this wasn't like a bing. It was like a 
and it got really loud and you're just like, what the heck is that? And then it just stopped. Um, but I believe that's maybe the Holy Spirit, right? Like, like just something happening as a witness supernaturally to show you, okay, something's going on here. God's doing something uh, supernaturally in your life. And they were all filled, not just a couple of them, all of them. Every single one of them were filled. That is diffused throughout their being. I love the Amplified. Actually felt it through their whole being. It wasn't just a little sprinkle or a little goosebumps, you know, goose pimples. And that was, no, it was like this whoosh, through their whole being with the Holy Spirit. And they begin to speak in other tongues. And that other tongues, whether it was different languages or it was the 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 gift of tongues through prayer and intercession, which I believe you have the gift of tongues with interpretation, uh, whether it's prophetic word or it's somebody speaking in another person's language, or it's the gift of tongues, your prayer language that you pray to God that edifies your body, that you speak mysteries, that you're maybe praying, uh, you know, because he knows how to pray as we ought. And there's praying with your understanding and there's praying in the spirit because you're not using your mind. And I believe it was both. I don't believe it was just these people were just speaking. There's people that teach this, that it's just, they're just speaking in other languages. And that's tongues. Tongues is just when somebody's, you know, who's not Spanish, doesn't know Spanish, then speaks in Spanish. And somebody goes, hey, you're speaking in Spanish, saying Jesus is alive and real, which is a sign and a wonder. But that's not the only thing tongues is. If it was, it would teach it differently. In 1 Corinthians, I believe... Uh, 11, 12, uh, or 14, one of those anyways. I think 14 is prophecy, but it teaches it differently in the New Testament, in uh, Corinthians, and also Jude, of what praying in the Spirit is. So we know that it's not just only that they were speaking, and it was just men speaking in different languages. So when the sound was heard, a crowd gathered, they were bewildered because each one was hearing those in the upper room speaking in his own language or dialect, they were completely astonished saying, look, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hear in our own language or native dialect? Among us, there are Parthians, Medes, so all these different uh, people, different tongues, different languages, and they're testifying and speaking about God. Christians, Arabs, we all hear them speak in our native tongue about the mighty works of God. So they're speaking about what? The mighty works of God, which is what? What the Holy Spirit has come to do in and through man. He wants to do mighty works through their life. Not only, and that's what the Holy Spirit does. He comes upon you and then you begin to speak and talk about how awesome and great God is and what he can do. And, and not only that, but then be used by him to do those things. And they were beside themselves with amazement and were greatly perplexed, saying to one another, what could this mean? But others were laughing and joking and ridiculing them, saying, they're full of sweet wine and drunk. So they thought they were drunk. So what is that? Is that normal? I mean, this is this is why people, you know, they get all like religious when it comes to the Holy Spirit, because people start acting differently or they act um you know, silly in a service and then it makes all the religious people upset because they go, all oh, those people shouldn't be acting like that. Well, here you go in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit, the, the main, right, 
Pentecost, the teaching of the outpouring of the Spirit, and you're seeing men look at other men and go, hey, they look like they're, they've been drinking some good wine. <laughs> they look like they're having a good time, right? And being drunk on the Spirit is far better and surpasses you being drunk on alcohol, right? The Spirit of God can inebriate you to a point where you have peace and joy. And guess what? There's no hangover. You can, you can experience great levels of joy and happiness and silliness with God. God loves to laugh. God has a sense of humor. God loves to laugh with his children. And, he, and I believe he laughs at us sometimes, right? Like we can make God laugh by what we do. Just like your ch children can give you the giggles, we can give God, I believe, he'll, he laughs at us sometimes by the things we do or the way we think or sometimes the way we act and he's just up there laughing like, oh my goodness, how, what am I gonna do, right? So I see God that way. And I know that God wants us to enjoy him and everything else is just a counterfeit. God is the real thing. And there ain't nothing like the real thing. Baby, right? <laughs> but Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be explained to you. Listen closely and pay attention to what I have to say. These people are not drunk, as you assume, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is the beginning of what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, which we're in, says God, that I will pour out my spirit upon all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see divinely prompted visions and your old men shall dream dreams, divinely prompted dreams. That's happening today. Even on my bondservants, both men and women, I will in those days pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy, right? There's another uh, evidence of being spirit-filled. It's not just you praying in tongues, it's you prophesying. And I will end having visions, having dreams, God speaking to you in dreams and visions. So there, it, it's like sometimes we want to just get stuck on this one little thing, but it's not just, you know, I believe praying in the spirit, praying in tongues is actually the gateway to all these other things flowing in your life. Because if you can train your flesh to shut up, your mind to shut up, and you can pray in the spirit, and like Jude says, building yourself up on your most holy, what, faith and belief that what you're speaking are mysteries to God, are you praying? And sometimes God can give you an interpretation or sometimes it, it opens up your ability to prophesy or to be used in supernatural ways because you're training your carnal nature to shut down and you're allowing God's nature and who he is to come and flow through your life. The Holy Spirit upon you. So Holy Spirit upon you can begin to take your mouth and you can surrender and begin to say, Right, you can begin to do that. And as you do it, you're actually shutting down the flesh and allowing the Spirit of God to rise up on the inside of you. Try it. Try it for 10 minutes, five minutes, and just do it for that long. And then Put your heart and your mind on the Lord. Just like I said earlier, he keeps those in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon him. 
Well, as you put your mind upon him and you pray in the spirit, and then after five minutes, tell me if you don't sense God's presence, if you don't have a, an unction or an impression from him, a thought that is a good thought, you know, you might even get some, some opposition. Your flesh might start squirming. You might actually have the enemy bring evil stuff or whatever, but that's where you have authority to say, no, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke you, devil. You're not going to distract me. You're not going to move me off my purpose of pressing into God, pressing into the spirit and allowing him to come upon me and use me in a great and powerful way. It says, even on my bond, my bond servants, both men and women, I will in those days pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. I will bring about wonders in the sky above and signs attesting miracles on the earth below. Blood and fire and smoking vapor. Yikes, right? That's going to be interesting. <laughs> the sun shall be turned to darkness. I mean, sometimes we just read over stuff and it's like, uh, okay, uh, I'm just going to ignore that part. But this is Bible. The sun's going to be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. For the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. And there's another translation that calls it the great and terrible day. And it shall be that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, invoking, adoring, and worshiping him, shall be saved. Rescued spiritually is what the Amplified says. Spiritually rescued from judgment, from damnation, from hell. Men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man accredited and pointed out and attested to you by God with the power to perform miracles and wonders and signs which God worked through him in your very midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, when handed over to the Roman authorities according to the predetermined decision and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross and put to death by the hands of lawless and godless men. But God raised him up, releasing him and bringing an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in death's power. What? <laughs> right there, right? Oh my gosh, it's so good. It says he was put to death by sin, basically, because it was lawless and godless men that put him to death. And that was literally a representation of the sin of mankind and their sin and our sin, my sin, everyone's sin, literally coming upon Jesus and killing him as a sacrifice, right? The lamb. But God raised him up, releasing him and bringing an end to the agony of death. Why? Since it was impossible. It's impossible for him to be held by death's power because he was God. Because he was, he was the one who created everything. He's the one who had power over death because he was the king of kings. He's the one that sits high above all names, above all authority, even death. And Jesus took the keys of it and said, because of men's unrighteousness and their sin, death had to come to them, had to destroy them. It had, they had to be put to death. That means an end for them. But Jesus says, it's not going to be an end for those who love me, who choose me, who come to be uh, united with me by faith and believe in me, confess with their mouth that I'm Lord and believe that I died for the sins. And not only that, but who love me, who wanna, who wanna live for me. And he took the keys from death and said, these will not taste of death, right? You might taste of death in the natural, but you're, there's not gonna be an end for you. There's eternal life. 
There's a heavenly realm. And that's the message we preach. That's why when people die, we shouldn't be so sad if we know they love God and they're saved. If people die and we know they don't know God, that's where we should be like, oh Lord, have mercy. God have mercy. And we should be ever more pressed to go and share the gospel with that individual and beg and plead them to receive the Lord. And I saw the Lord constantly before me for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced, my tongue exalted exceedingly. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. That is the encamp in attempt, that is will encamp in anticipation of the resurrection. For you will not forsake me and abandon my soul to hell, nor let your holy one undergo decay after death. You have made known to me the ways of life. You fill me, infusing my soul with joy with your presence. This is Peter preaching, talking about David, a psalm of David. Brothers, I may confidently and freely say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so being a prophet and knowing fully that God had sworn to him with an oath that he would would uh, seat one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke prophetically of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed. And he was not abandoned in death to Hades, the realm of the dead, nor did his body undergo decay. God raised this Jesus bodily from the dead. And of that fact, we are all witnesses. We're all witnesses. We saw him alive. We know that, that he was raised. This scripture was fulfilled. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this blessing, which you both see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, yet he himself says, the Lord, the Father said to my Lord, the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel recognize beyond a doubt that God made him both Lord and Christ, the, the, the Messiah, the anointed one, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart with remorse and anxiety. And they said to Peter, you know, there's people that say out there, you know, you know, God, God doesn't do that. God's not going to do that. No, yeah, when you hear the gospel, there is a fear of the Lord that comes upon your life that you know that you need to get right with God, that you know, oh my gosh, I want to live for God and I need, I need to get right with him. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what are we to do? And here's Peter leading them in the first, you know, uh, getting the first salvations, people getting saved. And here is what he says. He says to them, repent. Change your old way of thinking. Turn from your sinful ways. Accept and follow Jesus as the Messiah. And be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus because of the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise of the Holy Spirit is for you and your children and for all who are far away, including the Gentiles. As many as the Lord our God calls to himself. And Peter solemnly testified and continued to admonish and urged them with many words saying, be saved from this crooked and unjust perverse generation. So then those who accepted his message were baptized. And on that day, 3000 souls were added to the body of believers. They were continually and faithfully devoting themselves to the instruction of the apostles, to the apostles and to fellowship, to eating meals together and praying. So here's a model for the local church. 
What do people do when they get saved? What is a model for uh, the church of Jesus Christ? Right? Not of the not of Latter-day Saints, but just the, the people who say yes to him being Lord and then being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Very simple, right? It's not some crazy, weird doctrinal thing. It's it's very simple doctrine. You confess your sins, you repent, you change the way you think, you can you know that you need him, you say yes to him, you get baptized in the baptism of Jesus, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they were continually and faithfully devoting themselves, what? To the instruction of the apostles. They were, they were being taught. They were being taught by the Spirit of God through the, whole, through the apostles who were baptized with the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit, that teaching gift was at work, instructing them, speaking to them, teaching them, helping them, renewing their mind, shifting their old mindset to the new mindset, the mind of Christ. And how did they do this? Not only did they do that, but they ate, they fellowshiped together, they had fun, they laughed, they cried. They had to go through life together, right? And they were eating meals, but here's another one. They were praying together. They were spending time in prayer. What does that look like? Is that just somebody saying a little little quick prayer or were the, was it time of praying? Time of meditation, time together in a room and going after it with God where everybody can hear the other one and see their, their um, devotion and their heart. You know, there's nothing like getting in a room with people and then hearing how they pray and you get a good, a good clear uh, understanding of how, what their relationship like is with God. There's people that can pray and it's like, like, that, like the prayer in the movies. I lay myself to sleep. Lord, before I wake, please don't kill me. You know, that one, <laughs> the one, I, I can't even remember how it goes, but it's this very religious prayer. And then there's those who pray and you feel God show up in the room. And as they pray, the atmosphere shifts. And, and then you see answered prayers. You see God responding in their life. And, in their, and that's a cool thing too, when you get to know people and what they're desiring, what they're seeking, and you come into agreement with believing God with them and for them, for him to answer those prayers. There's no, there's, there's, that's like satisfying. It's actually very fulfilling. And it's very encouraging when you can join together with your brothers and sisters and then somebody's in need, somebody needs God to do something. We pray together, agree. And then you get a, a testimony back. You get an answer to the prayer. And we all get to partake in that. It's not just somebody by themselves having this relationship and nobody knows what God's doing or, or saying in their life. We get to see it. We get to witness it. It's pretty cool. And because of this, because of this going on, it produced a sense of awe that was felt by everyone. And many wonders and signs attesting miracles were taking place through the apostles. And all who had believed in Jesus as Savior were together and had all things in common, considering their possessions to belong to the group as a whole. And they began selling their property and possessions. Wow, you, you, know, you really don't see this in church anymore. I mean, it's pretty awkward, right? Oh, everybody's stuff is not their own and everything that's mine is yours. I mean, that mindset is definitely not in the American church. I mean, you might find some that are that way, uh, especially, you know, different um, cultures are just kind of that way. But it should be the way that we're that way. So if somebody's struggling, then we all pull from our resources to help that person in need. 
And that's really part of why the church is there, right? The church is there to help, to be there to help people, but not just by putting a Band-Aid on a situation, but by helping somebody also understand and know, um, you know, if there's need, then obviously there's there's ways to meet the need um, by just giving people money. But then there's times where you have to actually give instruction and correction and, and walk through things with people and help and, and go, okay, hey, we're going to come up to this crossroad and you used to go right, but I'm telling you it's time to go left and I'm going to help you make the decision to go left. If you'll allow me, you know, as a leader in your life, I want you to shift your focus and go this way instead of going down this way. And then we see God bless and get upon it and empower and break yokes and destroy bondages and help people move forward with God. And it says they begin even selling their property and possessions and were sharing the proceeds with all the believers. And as anyone who had need, they were wanting to just meet the need and they were selling stuff and not looking at it like their possession. They were just completely freed up. That's mine. That's mine, right? No, there wasn't any of that. This is mine. No, it was, I, it's mine now, but if you need it, it's yours. Hey, I have this and it looks like you need it. And I, here you go. Let me give it to you. I mean, that's a beautiful heart and a beautiful mindset. Day after day, they met in the temple area, continuing with one mind and breaking bread in various private homes. They were eating their meals together with joy and generous hearts, praising God continually and having favor with all the people. And the Lord kept adding to their number daily those who were being saved. So you see this model of fellowship and connectivity produces growth in the body. When you have this type of atmosphere where there's not that selfish mind and we're just helping people and we're bringing people into the community, but it's not just, it's not just, you know, we're just fixing band-aids and putting band-aids on. No, we're actually helping people by instruction, discipleship, getting them involved and listening and teaching. And then also fellowship and relationship and laughing and, you know, crying and sharing all those experiences, basically what they say, doing life together, right? They were doing life together. And then people kept coming because they wanted to be a part of that uh, culture. They wanted to be a part of that environment. Because I think one of the things the human soul longs for is relationship. The human soul longs for to be known and to, to not only want to be known, but to know others. You want to be known by people and you want to know others and you want to feel like you're a part of a family. You want to feel like you're a part of something. And there's a generation, um, you know, who who's looking to, to be accepted and a part of something. And there's wicked, evil uh, organizations and groups that are just full of demonic philosophies and doctrines and and, and perverted things that people will will go, oh, well, they accept me and I want, and they love me and they, they bring me in, but they're filling them with all this garbage, all this sinful, um, evil, wicked stuff that turns people away and off from God and leads them into a lifestyle of destruction and utterly to hell, right? And because sometimes the church isn't doing its job in making people feel welcomed and bringing them in to that kingdom of God and his ways of, of looking at things. And we're teaching and sharing and, 
in uh, bringing instruction and helping them see it from God's perspective and not some perverted uh, person who's full of the devil, right? Who's full of rebellion and wants to bring somebody in and pervert them and make them uh, twice the devil they are. I mean, it's pretty bizarre out there right now. Some of the things that people will yoke up with and become a part of. It's actually pretty sad. Well, I'm going to put a pin in it there. And that was the end of chapter two. We'll pick up in chapter three next week. But I just want to pray. I, I just pray right now, God, that you would that you would go into those society, those groups, those um, whatever clubs, whatever type of evil, wicked gathering, whatever evil community, whatever type of um, where it's just a group of people who are doing the fellowship and the eating, but they're godless, they're wicked, their hearts are wicked, they're, they're scheming, they're planning and plotting against God's people. God, I pray you would break in and you would begin to woo people out of those things, whether it's witchcraft and, and uh, Satan, Satanism or, or um, uh, the LGBTQ stuff and, and uh, some of the political stuff that has nothing to do with God and it's just full of, of rage and anger and, and people just out there wanting to destroy and, and rage against their, when in reality that they're, they're looking for purpose, but God, you give purpose, you give calling, you give us assignments, God. I just pray, God, that you would begin to break in and use us, use people, men and women of God of faith, equip them, empower them by your Holy Spirit to go into these uh, type of situations and rescue, just like we read here, rescue spiritually those individuals, that they would know Jesus, that they would know the move of the Holy Spirit, that they would know his presence and his love and his voice, and that they would surrender to his purposes in his family, his community, his kingdom, and that there would be churches that are alive. There would be churches that are full of people who are full of God's Holy Spirit, whose mandate is heavenly and whose calling is from heaven, God, and that their purpose is to go out and to reap a harvest and disciple men and women for the purposes and the call and the plan of God. In Jesus' name, we love you. We bless you. Amen. Time, time.